0: podcast we have been most looking forward to this season is happening now. And it is with the wonderful, amazing Melissa Butler from White & Case. Now, we love all of our guests, or we wouldn't invite them. But Mark and I have an additional reason to be big fans of Melissa's, and that is because She has been so kind to our students, and our students who now are no longer babies, they're out there practicing law, have told us about her and how she has looked out for them in a way in which we really hope that all of our students who go out there get this kind of mentorship and kindness. So, Melissa is one of the leading experts in sovereign debt with a particular expertise in sub-Saharan Africa. So there are good, strong, independent reasons to have her on. But but we are also so grateful that she has shown so much generosity and kindness to our students. So welcome to our podcast, Melissa.
1: Oh, thank you, me too. That was a... <laughs> very kind introduction um no I look everything positive you've said I could say right back to you um, about what I've heard about you and um and and what you have done for people so obviously uh, we're in good company
0: <laughs> well thank you for that 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 more than anything for us I, I, is that our students get to see how fun and exciting this field is. So, Melissa, there is so much going on and you are on the front lines. I'm wondering if you can give us an overview of what's happening in Africa with sovereign debt. Mark and I have worked now for multiple decades on sovereign debt matters with some of your wonderful colleagues like Francis Fitzherbert and Ian Clark over the years, and Africa's usually just uh, a side note, if at all, uh, mostly because of its bilateral debt, but this time around, they have a lot of bond debt, and they have different types of bond debt, they have domestic bond debt, they have foreign bond debt, they have syndicated loans, and uh, complicating all of this, they have Chinese debt, uh, I am noticing they have arbitration claims. So what is going on in Africa? And is it different from what we've seen in prior sovereign debt crises? So let's start with that. And Mm -hmm. then we have so many questions ranging from preferred creditor status to domestic foreign to syndicated loans and on and on and on. But we'll Mm -hmm. let you set the agenda.
1: Oh, thanks. Thanks, Mathieu. Yeah, sure. You know, absolutely. You're right. I mean, look, (laughs) there is a lot going on right now um, with a number of different countries. Right. And it's um, it's kind of the epitome of the perfect storm, you know, with the challenging macroeconomics and then COVID and then the Russia invasion of Ukraine, you know, causing a massive increase in commodity prices, which, you know, is in theory good in some jurisdictions, but in practice, actually not really. Um, And has really kind of created incredibly challenging um, macro and and fiscal uh, situations in many, if if not most countries in Africa. Um, And I think the challenges with each of them are surprisingly, you know, very different. As you said, it's a it's a very complicated landscape here, um, and uh, you know, I think uh, you know the, the differences between, for example, what's happening in Nigeria versus what's happening in Ghana versus what's happening in South Africa versus uh, Zambia. They're all actually you know, very different while well, they kind of seem, I know, I know everyone likes to talk about Africa, like it's one place, but, um, but actually the, 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 situations there with respect to the debt and their economic situations are, are incredibly, uh, different, um, and require really, you know, tailor-made solutions, you know, some of which people have been working on <laughs> for years, right? Um, I think, you know, Matthew, that, uh, you know, we have for, uh, Zambia, uh, in connection with its debt restructuring, um which really commenced in, in mid 2020 with the um, de- decision to apply for DSSI relief. And uh, you know here we are, uh, I don't think anyone would have thought that, that we would still be working on this in, in 2023, um, but nonetheless, uh, uh, that, that's where we are. And I think um, the, the, it, it completely is, uh, evidence is what you said, the complicated nature of, of what is happening here and um, the challenges in, in trying to
2: find a solution. That
1: that works for everyone, you know. Can, can um, you, oh,
2: sorry, ahead. Melissa. Can I, yeah. can I? There's so much here, and I was hoping I could get you to elaborate a bit on some of those challenges in in the mm-hmm. context of Zambia to the to the extent you can. Um, there are so many different aspects of this that we want to talk to you about, but I'm hoping you can kind of frame uh, the the difficulties for us and explain the. Contributors to to what has made this such a, a time consuming and, and complicated process?
1: Yeah. Well, look, I think obviously the as Mitch said at the outset, you know the the number of different creditors, right, and d- with different interests. We've obviously got you know three billion dollars worth of uh, uh, U.S. dollar bonds outstanding, um, significant official uh, creditor debt, uh, a, a number of commercial loans, um, that are all kind of stru- slightly structured differently. Some of them having, you know, ECA insurance, some of them having, you know, it, it, uh, other kind of, uh, guarantees or something. And, and everyone is, is kind of in a different position. Um, obviously China having a large position, um, uh, as well. Um, but nonetheless, you know, kind of, uh, helpfully, China taking a role, um, a, a leadership role in connection with the uh, Common Framework, agreed to co-chair that with, with France. Um, so, so discussions there, you know, I think we had a lot of optimism that uh, the, 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 um, what people, you know, everyone was kind of trepidatious with the large exposure to China, what that might mean uh, for the restructuring. And I think we were very optimistic, um, at least in the beginning I think, uh, you know, it's, it's gotten more complicated now in the sense that it's just, yeah, I think, I don't want to say this. I, you know, fundamentally, I think what's happening here is that Zambi has done everything that everyone has asked it to do, right? Um, it has, it, you know, uh, applied to the IMF for the program, worked through the program by all accounts from the IMF's own reporting. Zambia is doing everything, they're on track. You know, we've got the first review coming up April, May, but I don't think there's any concern that they're going to be on track with everything. Um, You know, they have endeavored to be open and transparent and communicate with everyone. Um, And they've suddenly found themselves here in the middle of a situation where, uh, you know, you're kind of seeing, pot shots being traded between uh, some, you know, Western leaders in China that, that, that really, you know, put Zambia quite in the middle. Um, and I think that they're not really sure what to do next. Cause the, the, the reality is, is that they are really struggling um, as a country and they need this restructuring to be resolved. I mean, this is real people with real, challenges that are being in, impacted by this right now. And I think that what we're seeing here between um, you know China who, who is making an argument around uh, the MDBs being excluded from the restructuring, which is obviously kind of the, one of the core principles of how debt restructurings have worked. Um, and obviously the MDBs uh, not accepting of that position. Um, is kind of created a bit of a stalemate right now. And we think we we really need them to resolve that at a geopolitical level um, outside of the context of Zambia's debt restructuring, right? (laughs) At this point, people just need to come to the table and and, and get a deal done.
0: Melissa, could you um, explain a bit more just the basics of what we're talking about here with respect to the MDBs and the Chinese view. So I I assume when we talk about MDBs, we're talking about the multilateral development banks and that includes, and please correct me, the World Bank, the IMF, but it also includes Well, it might or might not include a lot of other regional uh, development banks like uh, the African Development Bank, maybe, maybe not. And then, of course, China has its own official lending that may be private, but may be official. And then China itself is helping a lot of these countries engage in uh, long-term development projects. So, uh, it's my understanding of the frame is that historically because all of the institutions were western and were largely controlled by the western powers meaning us france england they they controlled the banks they controlled the lending their their institutions were doing the private lending their institutions were doing the public lending so you know they could make the decisions amongst themselves uh, privately as to who would get preferred creditor status who who would take the haircuts but now with the chinese involvement you it's no longer this tiny little club and so these the old informal norms about who's preferred and who's not i imagine have completely broken down and nobody's mm-hmm. If you have no clear rules, this can't work. Is is that one of, is that what you're saying? That basically, we're not prepared for this.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that that's fair. And I think, look, like I said, I think there's arguments on, on both sides, right? I think, um, you know, I mean, the traditional argument for preferred creditor status for MDBs, which as you said, yeah, it, it, just to clarify, you know, the World Bank, IMF, um, and the, the type of, um, you know, large uh, treaty-based development banks that that typically provide development and concessional financing, um, act as a lender of last resort. The the, the traditional argument for, for why they should get preferred creditor status is because when a country is going through difficulties like Zambia is now, is that they come in with financing, right? They're providing additional financing to and, and support to help them through the challenge. And so the, the idea is that their existing debt should be exempt from the restructuring because they are acting as that, you know, quote unquote lender of last resort. Um, so so there is there is a policy reason, there's value in that, right? It wasn't, it wasn't, Simply because there was a kind of a club who decided to sort of come together and say, "Hey, we're you know the only guys on the blocks who are going to make these rules." I think that there is value in that. It's still today. Um, you know, I do think uh, you know the we are seeing a proliferation of you know uh, quote unquote uh, multi-development banks, and, and we can we can talk about that uh, slightly separately because I think there's some some interesting dynamics going on there, um, but you know, the, the core kind of uh, value add from the IMF and the World Bank is is definitely still there, right? I mean, there's no question that Zambia would not have made it this far without their support. And I know that they're extremely grateful for it. Um, it, it the challenge I think with China is that obviously they've kind of, they're looking at this and, and perhaps questioning, you know, some of you know, the, the scope of the preferred creditor status and, and you know, whether that's still legitimate or, you know, whether or not in some cases there should be some debt um, that is in, incorporated into the perimeter of the restructuring. I think from Zambia's perspective, really, though, is that, you know, we can have an academic discussion, but from Zambia's perspective, you know, if, if I can be blunt, they don't really care, Right that all they know is that as long as this discussion goes on, that they're not getting the debt relief that they need. And it, it just, it, it, it can't, it's already been almost three years. This can't, you know, kind of evolve into an academic discussion about, you know, these kind of priorities right now. Like people just have to sort of put that aside or put that on an agenda for another meeting or discussion in a different context or in a different, um, you know, more appropriate setting but it shouldn't be fought out in the context of, of the real world relief that Zambia needs right now.
2: Can we, Malasa, before we we move on to a slightly different topic, I wanted to ask you to follow up a bit on the one of the comments that you made, which I took to, to be alluding to the fact that there are lots of regional development banks. So I mean, one, one way to view the the conflict between China and the traditional MDBs is at a fight over whether the traditional MDB should get preferred creditor status, but there's this different angle in which maybe preferred creditor status should be expanded to a much wider range of institutions, mm-hmm. including regional development banks. And so I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that a little bit, yeah. is, is that a direction that you think uh, things are going to trend?
1: Well, it's, I think it's a really interesting question, actually. And, and I think in terms of whether you widen preferred creditor status, I actually think the answer is no, right? I think the IMF has made it very clear um, that they do not think that, that certain banks that operate as regional banks should uh, be given preferred creditor status in the context of a debt restructuring. I mean, some of this kind of depends on on what you mean by, you know, quote, unquote, preferred creditor status. Here I'm talking about it in terms of uh, being outside of the perimeter of a debt restructuring. But sometimes in other contexts, it can be used to mean things like, you know, getting uh, tax relief or, you know, certain exemptions from, from local domestic laws, which I think that is a, a different... A uh, type of preferred creditor status, but um, here I think that IMF has made it very clear that they think you know certain regional development banks, um, particularly those that are characterized by having uh, any kind of private shareholding, um, should not. You know, basically, uh, you know, in, in you know, the IMF is still willing to lend to countries if they're in arrears to those institutions, right? So basically meaning that they don't need to um, get out of arrears in order to have an agreement with the IMF. So, so that would you know, lead us to believe that they don't believe that those entities have preferred creditor status, which, you know, again, it, on, on the one hand, you know, there, it, it, that, that is very logical and I think makes a lot of sense um, you know, the, that we can't kind of keep growing and growing the pool of entities that have preferred creditor status. But on the other hand, um, you know, some of these institutions are playing right, really important regional uh, roles and um, you know, are, are, are supporting the countries and the industries in, in, in the regions in which they operate. And many of these, these institutions are actually getting funding and, and financing from the IMF and the World Bank, right? Evidencing further the fact that they're seen as having value um, in these areas. So, so, but, but unfortunately, the, the, the challenge these guys have, which many of them have, is that they're not, um, you know, they don't have the financial backing. Oftentimes, their shareholders are, are the countries that are in trouble, right? You know, their, their shareholders are not the U.S. and, and um, you know, the, the, the European countries that, that support, you know, the IMF and, and the World Bank. They, they're countries that don't have the financing to support uh, to continue to, uh, to to fund cash in as and when required. Um, and so they have to they have to borrow. and they have to borrow at very high rates, right? So they can't lend on at concessional rates, um, which is again another argument for them not having preferred credit or status in a restructuring if they're not lending at concessional rates. Um, but, but but I think that there really needs to be a holistic look at this, right? because, Again, what what is the role of these institutions um, that are, as I said, receiving financing and other support from the IMF and World Bank, if they're not to to also, you know, kind of get the the, the exemptions and the preferred creditor status in a debt restructuring? And I think it's I don't I don't have a solution here. Um, I think we're just seeing it as as a real challenge um, and a real problem that um, you know that that. That it's it's a very you know the the not you know as we said the 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 situation we're dealing with here is not in one country it's the whole region that is suffering and so obviously the regional institutions are going to be suffering too and if they have high exposure to some of these uh, countries then that's gonna you know people need to, to to think about what to do with those organizations as well.
0: So Melissa, I I'm, I want to move on to asking you about the climate connection to the African debt restructurings. But one last question on Zambia, and I'm not sure you you can answer this given your involvement, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and you can just tell us to pass. But I'm wondering about, well, actually, two, two things. One, it seems to be that the financial press has sort of moved on to being more interested in Ghana and Sri Lanka and other other restructurings, and it's almost as if Zambia's all uh, solved. But then, when you look at what's happening in Zambia, it doesn't seem to be solved at all. In fact, I can't like they don't seem to have gotten really any relief. Um, I mean, they've gotten an IMF program, but so. Reading the press, I'm a a little puzzled that we have, (laughs) the Western press Mm -hmm. least seems to have moved on a little bit uh, from from Zambia. And then there were these very high profile visits of Western leaders. I mean, Secretary Yellen in in particular, I remember, to Zambia. That strikes me as A, uh, unusual and B, significant. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what the what prompted that level of us administration involvement because i mean from my my little understanding of this world it's pretty hard to get uh, somebody like secretary yellen to go to a country in distress and and make mm-hmm. important statements. So, and, and I'm guessing like this is your life every day dealing with this stuff.
1: Yeah, look, uh, on your first point, I mean, look, I hope the financial press hasn't moved on and if they have, they should come back to it because honestly, it's just, it's it, it, I can't emphasize enough. I mean, the, the debt restructuring in Zambia is absolutely not resolved. <laughs> And I can understand why people are kind of feeling like they're moving on because it's, it's taking so long. Um, but that is, that is a, just an absolute injustice right now for the people of Zambia. And, and I, I, I hope that um, people do continue to pay attention to it and do continue to put pressure on the, the stakeholders and, and get them to to really come to the table, start to be innovative and think about what the solutions can be. So, so look, I mean, I know it's, yeah, there are other things that are happening right now, probably too many things that are happening and and kind of drawing people's attention. Um, But, but we are hoping that, uh, that there'll be some resolution in, in Zambia very soon. On your second point, I, I mean, look, obviously you'd have to, I, I don't know exactly what uh, um, U.S. government policy is right now that would drive <laughs> the. You know, I think in the same week uh, we had the IMF, Andy, um, and uh, Secretary Yellen uh, in um, in Lusaka, which is you know it would be very unusual and high profile. I mean, I, I would I would think that it demonstrates an actual total level of commitment, right, and an understanding that as I said earlier, Zambia has done everything that it has been asked to do, and people. There's a lot of people who are saying Zambia deserves and needs the support. Um, I think we just need them to deliver it now. But I know Zambia was very appreciative of of the, of the support and the visits and the profile that that, that brought to them. Um, and hopefully it, it leads to a resolution quickly.
2: Well, Me Too had alluded to climate-related topics. And I guess I wanted to follow up on that if I can, if I can take us to a slightly different path here. And he and I have been thinking about this topic quite a bit lately, but mostly in connection with green bonds. And I know you and your firm, White and Case, more broadly, have been thinking about. A variety of different kinds of instruments that might take that might be responsive to climate-related considerations, and and in particular provisions that are derived from the early hurricane and natural disaster clauses, but that would give a bit of breathing room in the context of uh, a series of climate-related, uh, defined climate-related events. I'm wondering if you can give us a little more background on that, but but in particular, maybe if you can tell us what direction you see the market going. It, it feels like there are so many ideas out there in the world for dealing with the impacts of both the sort of long-term and expected impact of climate change, but also the acute crises prompted by uh, by real disasters. So it, it, where's the market going and, and what's likely to work?
1: Yeah, thanks, Mark. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. I mean, I think um, there's lots of really good ideas that are coming out there and, and people who kind of recognize that there are some really significant challenges that are only going to get more difficult, right, um, as climate change, climate change continues to cause uh, additional catastrophes and, and, and significant changes in, in weather and, and shocks around the world. And I think one thing that um, we think is quite interesting is the, um, the climate resilient debt clauses that were presented by the, the private sector working group at COP27 back in November. So this is an idea that, again, as you said, was based on kind of the hurricane clauses, but um, it's an idea that you would you would basically would have a contractual provision in bond documents that, that would say that upon the occurrence of certain predefined natural disaster, um, climate change uh, related event, that would allow uh, a sovereign to suspend debt service for, you know, a year to two years, or depending on, on what is negotiated. Now, you know, obviously, this is intended to provide, you know, immediate and temporary relief, um, similar to what the DSSI did, uh, you know, uh, during COVID, um, but kind of pre-baked relief. That, that if there is a, a a natural disaster that a country can redirect resources towards you know rectification and, and humanity um, uh, uh, type uh, issues in in country rather than towards debt service but again the idea being that it's immediate and it's temporary that at some point they um, come back and um, begin debt service again uh, on the bonds and 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 um, in an NPV in neutral type way so that bondholders are not losing money on it, on um, uh, allowing the debt uh, to suspend for that period of time. You know, and I, again, I think these are really interesting ideas. I think we could probably all agree in theory, um, it would be terrific if we had that type of thing. I certainly think, you know, when there is a natural disaster, people think, well, wouldn't it be better if the country had extra Uh, liquidity to spend, um, you know, on its people and and infrastructure to uh, ensure everyone is safe. I think, you know, there's obviously a number of challenges. These are not going to be straightforward, Um, particularly, you know, as you see, you know, anytime you try to introduce a new clause into, um, you know, where where a country might already have existing bonds, that's always going to make it more difficult, you know, where you might have some bonds that don't allow for the debt suspension, it's going to be really difficult to market a new bond that does allow this because it, it, you know, it kind of creates a disparity between how different uh, holders of bonds will be treated. Um, I don't think it's insurmountable though. I mean, I think people, and I think there's certainly some bondholder groups that that would look at these with, um, you know, uh, uh, skepticism, but I think others would look at it as, as being, you know, perhaps particularly those bondholders that are interested in, ESG type matters and and see that as an important role that the investing community can uh, play, um, then then I think that some may well be supportive. Uh, I think it does create an interesting opportunity when, for example, you you are doing a debt restructuring of the full amount of uh, a country's outstanding bonds, because that's an opportunity, obviously, to introduce clauses like these, because there is no disparity. Um, uh, in the outstanding debt because they would all have the same terms. So, so it'll be it'll be interesting with all the different restructurings going on right now. If anyone is able to successfully include these in their bonds,
0: so that's you set up exactly what I wanted to ask. In fact, you almost asked the question, and in the context of the restructurings that are going on now, such as uh, Zambia but also Ghana, Sri Lanka, uh, Pakistan hasn't started restructuring yet, but it seems likely that they will need to. And their, their, their problems seem to be very directly caused by climate events. Is there talk that that the new restructured documents will contain these kinds of climate resiliency clauses that sound uh, to me very much like a version of force majeure clauses. And I'm wondering, A, whether there, there is talk about how we should use the restructuring context to do this, which I find, I know this is what happens in practice because we have seen many times that the innovations occur in the restructuring context and not in the fresh issuance context. But it's a little puzzling from the perspective of these are, in fact, the weakest countries and uh, probably the ones most worried about penalty from the market for using new clauses, yet they are the ones most likely to innovate. So all of that boiled down. is, are we moving towards force majeure clauses and are we gonna see it in the restructuring? And one more thing to add, I'm so sorry, I'm I'm using this opportunity to ask three questions and preempt Mark from getting to ask his questions. So it, it's, um, are bondholders asking that they have some approval rights before these clause, clauses come into play or are they supposed to work automatically?
1: In your first question around the kind of are we moving towards some force majeure? I mean, look I think you don't who knows really whether I mean we are starting to see it right. We do have some of these like hurricane type clauses in, in um, Barbados and and, and others that, uh, that that we do see. I think I think we probably will start to see some increased traction on these, but again very much tightened around a predefined, set of parameters right so so um you know usually you know potentially with some kind of third party who who is able to kind of say yes we agree that this is the type of catastrophe that um uh, that would uh, trigger the clause so so i think kind of like with CACs, right um it took a little time but you know kind of the market moved in that direction i think you would probably We'll start to to see this um, a little more often. I think we just you know kind of some of the technology needs to be worked out a little bit in terms of how exactly uh, that the, they're going to work. Um, and oh, sorry, Mark, do you is there a fault?
2: Well, well, I didn't want to. I w- didn't want to interrupt, but I I do have a question about implementation. If if now would be a good time to ask it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it, the question really is: Is it possible to do this outside the context of a? of a restructuring since, you know, one of the things that that happens when you pre-bake sort of a little mini reprofiling into a bond is that I would imagine holders of that bond start to worry that to the extent one of these covered events happens, all they're going to do is, you know, free up some fiscal space for holders of the old bonds without the clause to get paid. So it, is that concern significant enough that realistically this is only going to happen when a, a country is in a, a restructuring stance and is effectively swapping out the whole debt stock? Or do you think we can see innovation outside that context?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's three different ways these types of clauses can get put in. Like, right, one is in a, in a restructuring context when you're swapping out your entire existing uh, bond portfolio for for new debt. Um, Another would be when you're doing a new issuance, right? So you're just accessing the the primary markets in the ordinary course. Um, And then the third would be to do a consent solicitation to add the provisions to an existing series of bonds. Um, So so there definitely are, if if a country wanted to to implement these, there definitely are a number of ways that they could do this um, that could be quite uh, interesting um, and be effective. I think the challenge is exactly what you sort of said in your in your last point there, right? Is is that outside of a restructuring context, it's going to be convincing unless you're doing it all as part of a broad consent process where you're going out to all of your series of, uh, of holders at the same time and asking them to vote to include the provisions where everyone knows that you know they're going to get treated the same. If what you're trying to do it if if a country has you know a bunch of existing debt that doesn't contain this clause, then then there 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 is potential for it to be challenged um, by investors if you're going to to try to put it into a a, um, a new issuance, right? I mean, you can argue against it, right? Because you're saying, look, it's NPV neutral. You're not going to you know like you should you catch up, and the idea is this is temporary, and if you know potentially you could look at some kind of thing that if you know, if they start to default on other debts, then then it's a it's a cross. You know, there's a cross default into into these bonds, so that you don't actually miss out if there is a restructuring, right? So that they wouldn't, you wouldn't somehow, you know, be at the back of the queue if they did start uh, restructuring other debt, and you know, nothing left um, in the coffers by the time your turn came up. I mean, I think there are ways if people if people want to be thoughtful and want to innovate, <laughs> I think they can right um i think there's a lot of really interesting stuff here and and it's really just a question of 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 whether you know the markets can kind of think uh through these uh, a little more thoughtfully and and sometimes you know it takes the first one to do it and then and then others can follow
0: so melissa we are getting to the end of our time it's very sad and we have so many more questions and We're not gonna get to ask you about all of them, but before we end, I'm hoping we can spend at least a few minutes on the question that surely has to have come up with a lot of the African countries and uh, maybe other countries in distress that, that you are perhaps helping or perhaps not, or at least have talked about. And this is the question that I have found arising in a number of recent crisis situations, which is, can we, and we being the country, can we tap our diaspora? Because Mm. we have so many people who work outside, particularly in the US and Europe, who are earning in foreign currency and are in fact sending money back to the country but the money is being sent through all sorts of channels that the government's not getting to tap into, how do we set up a mechanism by which we tap into the funds from the diaspora? And I'm wondering if you can tell us about this because my reading of the press, and I remember this also, from Greece in 2012 is that there's initially a lot of excitement and they think oh we'll do a bond issue for the diaspora in the US and we'll we'll do the, we'll have some direct deposit scheme for them to give us money and and then they spend many months on it and then it crashes and burns and and nothing happens and I, Mm -hmm. Do you see this? Do people talk about this? Or is it only in the World Bank IMF circles that they periodically get enthusiastic? Mm -hmm. And is is there is there I mean, some countries do succeed at doing this. Can we figure out a way to do this? Or am I just off on some academic uh, tangent?
1: No, you're definitely not on an academic tangent. Um, It is a good idea that a lot of people have thought about, or at least in theory, it's a good idea. A lot of people have thought about it um, and have attempted to do it. The only country, and I know you've covered this previously on podcast, the only country that has ever really successfully done that is Israel, um, you know, with a, an SEC registered program, um, that kind of turns out, uh, a number of different, uh, types of bomb products targeting the diaspora. The- the, the challenge, and, and you're absolutely right, it's a great source of financing, and, and this would be one area that, that I would love to see kind of regulators and, and the SEC and others kind of think about if there's ways that they can can look at, um, you know, perhaps making this more accessible source of financing but the challenge that that, that countries have particularly um, a lot of the countries in emerging markets that I deal with is well you know would, typically you think about accessing the the US investor retail market and you think oh all you have to do is register with SEC right um, and then you've got uh, you know register with SEC and then you're not limited to to sell to quibs and 144a you can you can access retail market markets but the the area that people don't think about is actually the 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 broker dealer and investor eligibility requirements, right? That that apply to a number of the that apply to basically the underwriting banks that would make them think about the whether or not, for example, a B-rated African sovereign would be a suitable investment for their retail clientele. And as soon as you start talking to an investment banking committee around that, uh, as you can imagine, uh, they back off that really quickly, um, and uh, the determination about whether or not that would be a suitable investment for you know kind of the diaspora type investors, um, and it's really unfortunate, right? Because because you do see you know a lot of this financing that's available. I mean, I think even more unfortunately, um, I, I think I said that Israel is really the only successful uh, example that I'm aware of, but we have seen a number of unsuccessful examples right of countries that have tried um and you know targeted the diaspora and have either um you know gotten into trouble or you know have kind of otherwise had to pull back from their efforts because it is unlawful to to sell securities in the u.s without uh you know, without a, a registration statement or an exemption therefrom. So, um, you know, and it's not something that the SEC takes lightly, especially when you're targeting, um, you know, uh, retail populations. So it's a very tricky area of law. And it means that it's an untapped source of financing that that I think, unfortunately, would be an excellent resource for a number of these countries. But the there's just too many legal and practical limitations right now in the system that, that uh, especially sub-investment grade sovereigns just means it's as a practical matter, uh, extremely difficult to do. You know, I know Nigeria had tried to do one a few years ago as well, and similar to Greece, you know, and did a registration statement and everything, but it just, it was really difficult, I think, for them to, to target the, the retail base precisely because of that reason.
2: Well, Melissa, as we as we wrap up, I'm wondering if you can answer a question that I know is going to be of sort of a special interest to our students, um, and and probably to some other listeners too, but but especially to our students. And I'm I just I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about how a, a U.S. trained lawyer winds up doing. Fancy international sovereign network housed in London uh, at a, a global firm, obviously. but um, can you give us just a little sort of s- snapshot of your kind of professional trajectory there because it seems a a very interesting one and one that I think a lot of our students would be uh, would find quite uh, quite interesting to know about.
0: Mark, we should ask how we can go and live live the kind of glamorous.
2: We have to. We know. We know that we know the answer to that question. You have to work harder than you or I are willing to do. Oh no, no! (laughs) Uh, no.
1: You know, you guys. You know, I had a professor in law school who said to me that. What did he say that the uh, a students become professors. The B students become judges and the C students become millionaires. So uh, I think that you guys were probably uh, definitely uh, the the smartest kids in your class um, and (laughs) ended up where you're supposed to be. Um, It's funny uh, that people would think that what I do um, is glamorous or fancy to use some of the words you guys uh, use to describe it. uh, it, it, it can be very tedious, although I do um, agree it is fascinating um, and, and, I, and I love what I do and I feel very lucky and I, you know, I wish I could tell you that there was a certain path to get here. I mean, I think um, it, was, it, it was very you know, fortuitous and, and accidental, uh, if I'm honest. Um, I started out my career in uh, New York. My, my uh, originally scheduled start date was uh, actually September 12th, 2001, uh, and my office building was in the Tower 2 of the World Trade Center. So my first um, six months as a practicing lawyer was, uh, as you can imagine, extremely um, unusual. <laughs> I feel like I can relate a lot to some of the kids who are starting now and through COVID and, and other kind of crises that, that it, you, things don't always start the way you expect them to, um, but no, I worked in New York for five years, kind of, you know, the most exotic place I would go to on diligence trips would be, you know, Ohio and New Jersey. And, you know, and at some point I'd always wanted to live abroad. And, um, you know, I kind of, I, through a number of series of events, I found my way to white and case. And the, the first week on the job, Francis Fitzherbert Ruckles, who Matu who, who knows, um, told me to get a visa to Kazakhstan which was, uh, you can imagine, after um, not really having gone anywhere else, it was very exciting. And then c- a couple months in, I had to get uh, to go to Nigeria, where we acted for Guarantee Trust Bank, which is the first Nigerian bank to issue a bond in the capital markets. Um, and uh, it, it, the first Nigerian entity at all, they even they issued before the sovereign came to the markets, uh, which is which is. Quite an unusual way of, of going about things, but partly as a result of our work with the uh, Guarantee Trust Bank, we were hired by the Nigerian sovereign to work on um, their debut bond and, um, and and had a great relationship with them. Still, still know the DMO there very well, a dear friend, Patience Inia. and Nia. And then from there, started working, you know, kind of getting cross referred and, and working with a number of the others. So, kind of all started as I said, somewhat. Accidentally, kind of being in the right place at the right time, um, and and very much just, I think you know, to your students, saying you know yes to opportunities as and when they arise, um, and and uh, you know, looking for for opportunities to see the world and travel if that's what you're interested in.
0: Well, thank you so much, Melissa. This is this has been so fun, and you really are one of the nicest, kindest and smartest people in the business. So I was thinking as you were talking and the the way in which you talked about Zambia, if, if I were a country in distress, I would really hope that I would have counsel like you who, who genuinely cared about getting me out of trouble but thank you very much. Unfortunately, the result of this podcast is going to be that every single student with an interest in sovereign debt is going to be beating down your door. And I, I remember a long, long time ago when I was very junior and our dear friend, Lee Buchheit had the kind of uh, status that I suspect you have these days, uh, we would have to, like it was impossible to get on any of his deals because he was the one person who wouldn't be nasty to you and wouldn't yell at you and actually put you on cool things. But the result was that we had to resort to all sorts of techniques like bribing the assistant to put our name on the appointments calendar and all sort, sorts of things. But um, that's that that is probably already happening to you or it lies in wait. But we're so delighted that we got to have you on the podcast. So thank you again.
1: No problem. It was absolute pleasure to speak to you and Mark. Thank you very much.